Primary Care Knowledge Based, COVID-19, Episode 5, End-of-Life Care. Hi everyone, welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Uh, We hope everyone's looking after themselves and had an okay Easter. We decided to focus today's episode on end-of-life care, both in general and with regards to COVID-19. We talk about advanced care planning, symptoms to expect at the end of life from COVID, and we highlight the guidelines that we think are useful and discuss a few specifics around this. Yeah, we talk about anticipatory medication and stock issues and touch on post-death support for families as well as clinicians. Thank you to our guests today and their insights into the topics were so well conveyed and we hope you find the episode as useful as we have. So, first of all, would you like to all introduce yourselves for us? So, I'm uh, Viren Mehta. I'm a GP in uh, Cheadle Medical Practice in Stockport, uh, Clinical Director for our PCN and Clinical Director at Stockport CCG. So I'm uh, Liam Hosey. I'm a GP in Wigan, uh, end-of-life lead GP for my CCG, uh, but I'm also the primary care palliative lead uh, GP for Greater Manchester and Eastern Cheshire Strategic Clinical Network. And uh, I'm Adam Firth. I'm a GP at Brackendale Medical Centre in Stockport and a primary care medical educator for Health Education England, so support the final year trainees in Stockport in that regard. Uh, I've previously worn a few different hats that link in with kind of end of life and palliative medicine. So done some work with the RCGP and probably more recently some work with NICE developing uh, end of life care guidelines. So uh, hopefully something helpful to share today as well. Thanks very much for joining us. We wanted to just sort of introduce the subjects, first of all, in terms of why we're talking about palliative care and medicine today. Would somebody like to kind of open it up as a a general point? Obviously, COVID has been with us now for a few weeks. We are starting to see some people, for example, in care homes, some of our uh, people with frailty who are getting COVID and very quickly GPs are having to make decisions around whether people should be admitted to hospital. If they're not admitted to hospital, what we do um, in that scenario and how we start to think a little bit more proactively about some of these patients. I think we're getting lots of questions about symptom control um, in COVID. So hopefully we can we can cover some of those today as well. Lovely. Thanks, Viren. So I thought it would be a good place probably to start when we're thinking about end of life to talk about the advanced care planning side of things and to think about that specifically during these strange COVID-19 times. So how do we go about trying to identify the people that we need to be having those conversations with? I mean, I think with advanced care planning, the COVID times has actually given just a, a greater focus on, on that. And actually, the concepts of identifying patients who may benefit from discussions around advanced care planning is something perhaps as GPs we should be doing all the time, regardless of the sort of situation regarding COVID. First of all, I think we need to say there can be no blanket approach to this. It's really important to recognise that advanced care planning is a very much an individual process. As we do normally, we have to view our patients as individuals. Um, so therefore, we can't simply say anybody above a certain age or all of our lists with certain conditions must be considered for discussions of advanced care planning. Having said that, um, as practices, we do hold lists, so our gold standards framework lists or supported care registers, however we want to term them, and they may be a group of patients to start looking at to say, if you've not got an advanced care plan, could we have those discussions? Similarly, um, many of our practices will have large amounts of care and nursing home residents registered with them. It's certainly not to say that every patient in a care or nursing home we should consider for advanced care planning discussions. But equally, I think it's relatively obvious to us as clinicians to say that these people will tend to be more old, more frail, have more 
comorbidities um, that may make them more likely to deteriorate. And, you know, kind of then it comes on to some of the practicalities. Well, so how do we go about it? You know, what, what form of words might be helpful when we're picking up the phone or going on a video consultation with someone who's you know, just received a letter from government to say you're extremely vulnerable and at risk of COVID-19? What, what steps can we take? And one of my colleagues shared her kind of experience and some, some really helpful tips with, with a phrase that was just as simple as, so whilst we're doing everything that we can and everything that you can to self-isolate so that you're not at risk of catching COVID, have you considered what might happen if you do develop symptoms and become poorly from it? And just that simple, you know, open question can lead us into conversations and discussions that are sometimes really difficult to broach. I think I think the other thing is um, how you have these discussions. So you've got the choice of if you want to do this in person, face to face, you're doing it now potentially with full PPE or you're doing it remotely over a telephone or video link. So I think the first thing I'd reference is if you haven't already checked out episode two of our COVID podcast, there's some general hints and tips about video consultations on there. But Adam and Liam be really grateful to get your thoughts about how we do these discussions in these different scenarios, in these different ways. To a degree, some of these discussions um, we perhaps have done potentially remotely, even in the pre-COVID time. So, for example, we may um, see some of our residents in care and nursing homes and actually family members may not have been there when we've been out there and then we've had to have a follow-up conversation. So we're probably relatively set up for approaching that as, as we do normally. Um, and again, I, I think perhaps if we're having remote conversations with patients, be it telephone or be it a video link, I think we still have to use our general communication empathy skills and say, we realise this is a little different. One other thing I will say, though, I think we're very COVID-focused, but quite clearly as GPs, some of our patients will deteriorate for other reasons other than covid they may deteriorate and have COVID or they may quite, quite simply have lots of other conditions and deteriorate and it's nothing to do with COVID at all. And we're still going to have to have very similar discussions, albeit in a slightly different manner. I think for me, I've kind of categorised the way that I consult into kind of 1D, 2D and 3D consultations. So there's telephone, which is essentially one dimensional. I found myself at the start of the pandemic when we were using much more remote consultation by phone that I'd I had to change my consultation style normally in my consultations when I reflect back on it I don't say a great deal I'll sit and I'll listen and observe and get information that way but that's impossible just using the phone whereas that kind of 2D consultations of using video it gives me more information it allows me to consult more like I would when I'm 3D. The, th- the only thing I can't really do in a 2D consultation is make physical connection with people. And so it's kind of interesting to to reflect and adapt a little bit that way. But I guess what I'd emphasise is that for these conversations and wherever possible, I'm going to go with the most dimensions that I can. So 2D for me uh, is, is the way to go. I guess the other thing to um, consider, Adam, because we touched on this in the last episode we did talking about the changes to death legislation, is if you are thinking that it's quite imminent end of life, perhaps if you're doing a consultation, it should be video over telephone because then that counts as an, an assessment of the patient. Absolutely. I think that's the other thing in terms of how you might be doing advanced care planning slightly differently to before. It is just being aware of any issues around death processes if if that scenario occurs. So if you're in Greater Manchester, we've got the um, early deaths 
service. And again, our last podcast with Dr. Tracy Vell goes through the specifics of that particular service. But wherever you are, it may well be that your processes around managing deaths is different. So just be aware of that. Um, If we move on now to talk about COVID itself and sort of the symptoms really, so what to expect or identifying symptoms when people look like they're coming towards the end with COVID. Yeah, I don't know about Liam and and Viren, I guess from my perspective, the setup in Stockport is such that we've got teams who are essentially covering our hot cases, patients with COVID. And and so for me, I'm primarily based in, in cold teams currently. And so it's been a case of kind of keeping my ear to the ground and trying to get a sense from colleagues as to what they're seeing and what they're facing. And and in that, you know, the feedback that we've heard is that the common symptoms that people are describing, particularly at this more severe end of community management, are breathlessness, cough, kind of anxiety and agitation to a degree, and fever. And what they're not seeing and what they're not having to try and palliate to provide symptom control for is is a significant amount of nausea or vomiting. A significant amount of pain or indeed kind of issues around noisy breathing and respiratory secretions at end of life and and being really mindful that for people who are deteriorating with covid the deterioration for people particularly who are frail already is dramatically quick and so uh, some of the steps that we can then take in terms of symptom control need to need to consider that I think the only other symptom that I've seen um, on a couple of occasions is delirium. So again, it's probably related to um, breathlessness and hypoxia, but delirium is another issue that that a lot of people are reporting. So again, as you're trying to manage symptoms, um, that might be another one just to consider your approach as to how you might manage, especially given the the speed at which it might happen. It'd be really interesting to hear, Viren, in terms of that differentiation between kind of agitation, anxiety and delirium. How would you draw that out? Or maybe Liam as well. What what would you use to differentiate between those things? Because I think that adds a little bit of confusion to people. I'd like to say there's there's a magic test that we could say we do this and that's that. And I don't think that that exists, unfortunately. I think it's going to be a little bit of perhaps clinical judgment and assessment looking back at the history and how things have evolved would be my view. And I think it it comes down again to clarifying the terms that people are using. So I had a a carer from a care home who said, I've got a patient who's very distressed. And actually, um, it was really helpful just to say, what do you mean by that? What's going on? And actually, we we sort of went through, well, actually, is the distress breathlessness or is it agitation or is it confusion? I think what we're saying is it's not straightforward, but try to get as much live information as you can as to actually what's going on. I guess my reason for, for trying to define it in a better way or, or help us in terms of our diagnostic step is because that's, again, one of the gifts, I guess, of high quality palliative care is to make diagnoses, identify causes of, of symptoms where we can, and then to try and control symptoms. And so when we think about some of the guidance that's available to us, there'll be different recommendations potentially for delirium and agitation and anxiety. And as a jobbing GP, that for me, became something that I found quite confusing. Thinking about symptom control with end of life and COVID-19, were there any specific challenges or changes that have come up in terms of new guidance that's come out in these last few weeks? So it's been it's been tough from my perspective in the sense of the rapidity and the variety of, of guidelines that have been available to us. You know, I think we've all experienced the noise of the constant email pinging with updates. Things are changing hour by hour in many ways. And so this week I've had the opportunity to try and help colleagues in Stockport to 
really kind of work through what's available to us. I think it's probably helpful to mention that we did a, a Stockport Grand Round and at that worked through some uh, some material and that's going to be available as a as a kind of separate uh, audio recording for people to click on. We'll, we'll get the link kind of shared somehow. Brilliant. We'll share it as well when we get it. But, you know, from my perspective, I, I looked at five different resources that we've got available. So MG31, which was the care of the dying adults in the last days of life guidance that was published in December 2015. That was and is a really helpful, useful resource for how we approach care of the dying adult in the last days of life. And everything that's in there, in my opinion, still applies. You know, I went through it with a fine tooth comb and it seemed to fit and be helpful. We've got local symptom control guidance in all sorts of different guises. The RCGP back in at the end of March produced their community palliative end of life and bereavement care in the COVID-19 pandemic guidance. And there's some helpful things in there. NICE then produced their rapid guideline about managing symptoms, including end of life in the community. And then another resource that lots of people have, have kind of seen and accessed is, is some of the Hospice UK guidance around caring for your dying relative at home with COVID-19. Right. And that, that's been a really interesting one because it's primarily patient and care focused, but has a little section that makes some recommendations to healthcare professionals, but is a little bit more contentious in some ways and a bit more challenging. So if it's helpful, we, you know, we could unpack each of those in a way or, or whatever we've got time for. I guess, was there any, any surprises in it? Is there anything that you think people might be asking questions about thinking, oh, that's a bit different from normal? One thing I've um, read that was um, a bit of a surprise or a few people have asked me about is levomepromazine and some of the doses being different in some of the recent guidance they've read. Liam, have you got any, um, have you had any, any of that? Yeah, that's a really, really valid point. I think the, the levomepromazine was a real standout dose, I, I think. So it's a, a drug that often we would perhaps use for nausea and vomiting control in standard last days of life uh, treatment. But it had been recommended much higher doses in COVID patients, I think, to try and manage some of the agitation and, and delirium aspects. A lot of localities that I'm aware of have very much adopted an approach of, well, actually, probably our current guidelines that we have for last days of life are probably sufficient at the moment to manage the vast majority of community patients. And these guidelines are pretty much Greater Manchester based with a few local tweaks. And I think many people are adopting a pragmatic approach. Well, maybe we stick with what we know for now, but if we run into trouble, so if we're finding symptoms we cannot control, that's when we perhaps need to be picking up the phone and asking for some advice. Um, And that probably will be depending on your local pathways. But for most areas, that will be either a hospice advice line or maybe into secondary care palliative advice lines if that system exists within your locality. You know, coming back to those five different pieces of guidance that we've we've kind of looked at, for me, there's really helpful kind of consistency between the majority of them. My personal perspective on the Hospice UK kind of recommendations, I really do think it's helpful to emphasise that they're primarily produced to offer advice to kind of non-professional informal carers. Within that guidance, there is certainly the section for healthcare professionals. There is, there's a couple of suggestions that are almost suggestions for a time that I, I hope we don't see. So there are suggestions for a time that it's going to be beyond where we are now in terms of our access to healthcare support. You know, there's information in there about maybe using things like hyacinth patches to try and palliate noisy breathing at end of life. From what I can understand, the reason that they're suggested is because they're very easy to apply in terms of informal caregivers as opposed to an injectable medication, which is what we would currently use in that setting. 
with healthcare professional input. So my interpretation of that piece of guidance is that there's some really helpful tips and advice for family members and caregivers informally, and that should be emphasised and, and, and used. But I think some of the healthcare professional kind of suggestions in there are things that do go beyond and outside of what is our normal kind of standard practice. And it kind of comes back to what Liam said, as it is today, some of that normal standard practice is is what we should continue to try and, and deliver and achieve. And it's only when things get beyond that that I think we should start to really be diversifying even further. And that that's a good point, actually, because I was going to ask about um, alternative routes for some of the medications. And you've mentioned about hyacinth patches there, but is there any other guidance about using alternatives like sublingual or anything like that? Yeah, so again, I guess coming back to guidance, because we like guidance sometimes. So something to emphasise from NG31, Care of the Dying Adult, is in terms of our anticipatory prescribing, to tailor that anticipatory prescribing to symptoms and kind of issues that we anticipate individual patients are going to face. So when I'm going to be prescribing for patients who are dying from suspected COVID or confirmed COVID, what symptoms am I going to expect to see and what situations am I trying to manage? I'm trying to manage rapid deterioration and I'm trying to manage breathlessness, cough, agitation, delirium. So the sublingual routes, lorazepam has been mentioned and, and is in quite a few of the guidelines that off-licensed lorazepam tablets can be used sublingually. And that could be helpful for managing anxiety agitation. So I may well choose to use that. Similarly, haloperidol has been mentioned more than, I guess, I would normally turn to. And it's a case of looking at each individual patient trying to assess what symptoms am I expecting to see and how can we then prescribe most effectively in that space. And it comes on to thinking about local availability of medications as well. And just before we do move on, um, in terms of the lorazepam tablets off licence use, are they normal tablets you can use for sublingual? Yeah, so to, certainly to my knowledge, that's the case. And it's as Liam had said before, what we need GPs to be doing is practising within the limits of their competence and their knowledge. And so when we get to that stage where we're going, this talks about using sublingual tablets, as we've just all done on the call then, like, actually, do we really know whether we should be using these tablets crushed up, squashed up, burnt up? Like, who knows? So in that situation, what should we do? It's obvious. I'm going to phone a friend. I'm going to speak to someone that does know. So, you know, that's the kind of step to take and the routes that need to be taken. Perfect. Um, there's some concerns around stock issues that you mentioned and do you know of any processes in place at the minute with regards to the stock issues? I, mean, I think this is probably looked at at many levels sort of national, regional, local. I think as job and GPs we all know that from time to time medicines do run out and this could be any medication. I think that's a, a bane of most of our lives being asked to, to find alternatives for X, Y and Z. At the moment, there's no definitive guidance saying we are short of a certain type of medication, though on the ground locally, I think we do hear that some places have transient supply problems. So a certain area may have a lack of morphine at certain strengths for a short amount of time. I think locality areas are undertaking stock techs of what they have at the moment and trying to modify their ordering patterns to sort of bounce up possible need in the future. So I guess a, a point from today is I don't think everyone needs to go and email their medicines management team, but maybe a sort of a primary care network level or something, maybe liaise back with your CCGs and just say, look, are we okay in our local pharmacies? Because if not, as Adam said, we may have to go to plan B. 
And again, it's changing hour by hour and day by day. And I've got to take my hat off to our prescribing teams locally who've been working incredibly hard to kind of do this process of, of trying to make sure that GPs know which pharmacy they can use at what time to be able to get these essential medications to patients as, as urgently as we need to. And I think also a, a nod to our community pharmacies who are working so exceptionally hard and trying to source medications sometimes from all over the place. The other thing to mention in terms of trying to help maintain stock control is thinking about the fact that COVID, when you get to that end of life stage, is quite a rapid deterioration. And also there are quite specific symptoms that we're trying to palliate for. So perhaps in the past where we would have prescribed 10 ampules or even 15 ampules of certain medications, maybe think about a smaller prescription of just say five to, to get things started. And for for a lot of cases, that seems to be sufficient for needs. I guess, yeah, specifically, like you say, Viren, for COVID patients, there will be other cases of end of life deaths that may require more, but it's individualized to the patient. Absolutely. Really quickly, one logical solution with that is if there are kind of just in case packs made up somewhere or you've got, you know, kind of anticipatory prescribing PCP type medication pack, if they're currently made up as 10 amples, we can split them to two lots of five amples and essentially double the stock that we've got. Mm. And if we're then thinking on that individualized basis, well, actually, this person is dying not because of COVID, but potentially because of cancer or whatever other diagnosis it might be, then I'm going to use two PCP packs. That's a good point. I think it's probably worth touching before we end about post-death care support and things like that, because that's obviously going to look a little bit different um, with isolation and services all being different at the minute. Do we know how we can um, support grieving families in this stranger time? I think it's a, a very, very good question about the sort of the post-death bereavement support. And I think it's a real challenge for exactly all the reasons we've described there. Some of that support is going to be via telephone and video advice. Yes, of course, as GPs, we will have roles in, in maybe sickness certification for people and, and identifying depression that comes as, as part of that bereavement. I'd strongly suggest that we perhaps all need to link into what our local offers are because there will be local solutions there depending on the nature of the bereavement. So, if, for example, if it's a child who's lost a parent, there'll be a way of doing that locally. Or it may well be that as, as time progresses here, organisations do set up sort of more bespoke sort of post-COVID bereavement pathways. I think we're at the start of that journey yet, so that could be a watch this space for now. Yeah, if we can share any links, uh, some of my educator colleagues have, have done some great work to support their trainees. And I've got a couple of links that they've circulated that speak to how we might be able to kind of help prepare and, and provide that post-bereavement care. Brilliant. But I, I guess the other thing that I think is really important to emphasize is that as clinicians, this is incredibly tough as well. Yeah. I was struck that one of our patients, someone that I've cared for for years, has suddenly died. And I haven't been able to journey with her and her family over these last last few days or last few weeks and I normally would and you know I think there's some there's some great information out there the Harvard Business Review had a, a, a great article about these feelings that we're having both after people have died but even before that of grief of, of, of loss because things have changed are kind of really real and I think need to be acknowledged and, and how we support one another as kind of clinicians is key because it's it's tough. And being able to to look out for one another, being able to pick up the phone or hop onto Zoom, and uh, and just to connect, I think is key and important this time. Oh, lovely! I think that's a really nice point. We are trying to line up an episode all about clinician wellbeing and and how you can look after yourself during this really really unusual time for for working in primary care. So, if you have takeaway points from this episode today, what would you like people to remember? 
I mean, I think firstly, I think we've got to deal with each and every patient as an individual, not adopt blanket approaches to advanced care plans or admission avoidance plans and also utilise our considerable skills that we have um, but in a different way. So use the remote consultations um, to our advantage. Adam? Stick with what you know. So follow the guidance that we've got available to us and that we're used to using where we feel like we're getting out of our depth as generalist palliative care practitioners then and pick up the phone and phone a friend get in touch with the the specialist teams for advice when you need it and Viren? i suppose think proactively about care planning and the people that might benefit from the, the approach that we're taking and i think just think about how you support each other with these cases and in general during this really difficult time so as a practice how are you touching base with each other especially when lots of us may be working from home you know we're trying to socially distance as much as we can so just make sure you're touching base with people and just supporting them through what can be a really really difficult time yeah lovely learning points for now i think uh, that's everything we'll just say thank you for coming on today it was really really lovely to chat to you all thank you thank you very much so that was a really um, informative and useful chat today i think sarah before we kick off our learning points um it's just important to let you all know that we spoke to a palliative care consultant in the local area to find out about the lorazepam question that we had during the episode and they said that ideally um if you're going sublingual you want to use score tablets and cut them in half and place them under the tongue and actually the sublingual concept is only really there um if the patient is too breathless or too pearly to swallow so they don't don't actually work any quicker than um, the normal way we'd prescribe lorazepam at the end of life. So we thought it was just uh, a good idea to let you all know in case you were wondering about that during the episode. So what would you say your main learning points are, Sarah? I think it was such a lovely episode altogether to, to be able to talk to such really genuine and thoughtful people about palliative care, people who clearly know their patients well and are doing the best for people. I feel a bit more prepared, I think, as you know, as much as you can do in these uh, strange times. But I really liked uh, loads about it. That whole sort of thinking of consulting as one two, and two and three dimensional consulting I thought was really lovely. Yeah I particularly liked Adam's point about how um, to lead in the question for advanced care planning and um, when you're talking to, to people who are maybe in the vulnerable groups or yeah, yeah just that was just such a nice way of phrasing it to make it easier to be able to start those conversations. Yeah I didn't realise there was a Hospice UK link that could mm-hmm. help carers um, and I think that would be really useful to signpost carers to. Definitely but I guess again with caution for you Using the practitioner advice in it um, as we've discussed in the episode yeah I also think the point about sticking to what you know when it comes to palliative medicine and not being afraid to contact if we're coming up with issues and also just understanding what the likely problems that people are going to face in end of life around COVID was really useful yeah and I think the final point that was made just about supporting each other it's, it's a bit of a theme in all of the episodes that we've been doing I think but it's in terms of death I think it's quite important because it'll be a loss for for some of the clinicians as well when a patient dies yeah. and it's important not to forget them so yeah I think that was nice to highlight as well absolutely um, so thank you very much to everyone who was involved with the podcast today and if you want to get in touch we're on Twitter our handle is at PCKB podcast or you can email us at primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com yeah and as we say we also have a survey which is anonymous it takes one or two minutes to fill in and you can give us um, feedback or questions on that and we'll put a link in the episode description till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost <laughs> 
guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.